listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. good now I'm on anyway you guys heard me that was a plant so we're we're hoping for more of those I'm, I'm hoping that it gets it all fostered and then maybe more happen throughout the time together but so I just want to bring you guys up to speed a little bit about where we've been in our journey we've been walking through the book of Romans and for me specifically it's been a very significant journey Every time I, I look at the book of Romans, it's as though there's this magnifying glass where it sort of peers inside the areas of my heart, and, and numerous things happen, not the least of which I'm reminded of my own sin. I'm reminded of my capability of self-deception, the enabling and amazing ability that I have to think that I'm better than I really am. And then the words echo in, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'm also reminded of my attempts to handle my own sin, thinking and having conversations with God or putting on some pretense that I'm better than I really am or even attempting to tell God, I, I know that was wrong and I messed up, but, but here, God, I promise I'll, I'll do better next time. And it's as though every time the book of Romans is opened up, those false theologies begin to crumble, and what becomes something that is so needed and so necessary to nourish my soul is the reminder of grace as it reverberates in the context of my own heart. The sense of knowing that grace is that undeserved gift from an unbelievable God, that there's nothing that I could have done or even do now that merits his love and favor in my life. That he is relentlessly pursuing me in numerous and unfathomable ways, some of which I see and some of which I don't. And so over the last few weeks, we, we camped out in Romans 8, what many have said is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. And we would say, obviously, every chapter in the Bible is critical, but Romans 8 is this one that reminds us of the richness of who God is and his character. And, and even last week, this place where you're just sitting in the inseparable love of God, that there's nothing that can take away God's love towards his people. And ideally, we were finding ourselves assured of his presence. Even in the midst of challenges and difficulty, there was a space of at least coming to the head knowledge and hoping to translate to heart belief that, that God loves us unendingly and without condition, that he is pursuing and caring for his people in real and tangible ways. And yet, there's a small portion of that text in Romans 8 where Paul extricates a verse from Psalm 44 and applies it to the inseparable love of God. And it's one that we've read and we read and reread, but here is what it says after, after Paul goes through this whole notion of nothing can separate us, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Then he adds this really jarring text that seems challenging to know how to apply and how to address. 
And it says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It, it seems misplaced. I mean, if we were going to use any of the Old Testament passages to describe the love of God and how unconditional and unbelievable it is, Psalm 44 would not be our choice. There would have been hundreds of other Psalms we could have chosen. And yet, Paul, in his unbelievable wisdom and knowledge of the Old Testament, does it in such a way that is, I would suggest, incredible. Because it's going to meet us at a place that I think many of us have been but don't want to talk about. It's the place where we would look at the canvas of our lives and and we would realize that there are challenges that we face, but some of the things that hit our lives aren't directly correlated to our sin. We can't draw a straight line between the suffering we feel and the sin that we've done, and so there's a place of trying to make the puzzle pieces fit, and, and here's what we do. Well, we live in a broken world, right? That, that becomes the default of where we are, and it's unequivocally true, but there's more to it, and Psalm 44 is one of those psalms that allows us some of the freedom to ask the questions about God and his character in the midst of inexplicable suffering. It's interesting because Psalm 44 is written by what's called the sons of Korah. So there's 11 psalms that were written by the sons of Korah in the Old Testament. And they would be so familiar to many of us. Words that even, even uh, Amanda said this morning, As the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Right? God is my refuge and my strength, my ever-present help in trouble. Oh, it is better to spend a thousand days in your courts or one day in your court than the thousands elsewhere. I'd rather be a, a doorkeeper in your temple than anywhere else. Like these words just reverberate. Be still and know that I am God. All of those words come from the sons of Korah, words written to strengthen fragile faith and remind us in the character of God. Except for two psalms, Psalm 44 and Psalm 88. Those two psalms are psalms that come less about understanding the character and the nature of God and more we put in the category of protest. God, what is going on? I don't get it. I can't draw a line from my suffering to the sin, and certainly I can realize that we live in a broken, fallen world, but it's unsatisfying to say the least. I'm uncomfortable with just the fact that somehow God is subject to the brokenness of the world. He can act and has acted in the past, but why is he not acting now? The intensity of those words in Psalm 44 and Psalm 88 are exactly where we find ourselves this morning. So if you open your Bibles to Psalm 44, it'll also be up on the screen. I need to give you just a little bit of a backdrop because those who were inspired to write the Psalms also have a story. The sons of Korah have a somewhat of a tarnished story, if you will. If you look in the Old Testament and you start to read in the book of Numbers, you get a picture of who these guys were. <laughs> and it's not all that flattering. So after 
God had done a miraculous move and moved the nation of Israel to out of the uh, bondage in Egypt and cross the Red Sea, and they were setting up a system in the desert for what worship would look like. The sons of Korah would be those who were part of the tradition of the Levites. They were priests. They were those who were representing God. And there were three different groups, and each of them had different jobs. Well, the Koalites had a specific job, and they were the ones that were called to carry the tent poles and, and to be in charge of the curtain and all of these aspects of the temple that they would be setting up everywhere they went as they set up the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was essentially the place where God's people met with God. It was where God's presence dwelt. The challenge for them was that they thought that they got the short end of a long stick. They felt like everyone else in the other two sections of the tribe of Levites had easier jobs than they did, and here's why. The other two were able to carry all of their necessary elements and their responsibilities on carts with horses and move them along from place to place. Not the Koalites. They had to carry them all by hand. They all had to be responsible for making sure that they would do the things that they needed to do, and it took more effort. And as they looked at comparison with the other Levites, like I said, they felt like they got the short end of a long stick. And so what do you do when you feel like you're doing more than someone else? Well, human nature tells you what you do. You complain. Somehow, in some way, it's leadership's fault. And that's where they go. They go to Moses, and they are so unbelievably convinced that Moses is not in the place that he should be and that they deserve to be in charge. And so Korah begins to challenge Moses' leadership. And then in one of the most crazy passages in the Old Testament, and there are plenty, number 16 serves as one of the weirdest ones that you can read. So there's this challenge, and here's what Moses says. All right, if you don't think that I should be in leadership, then one or two things will happen. Either you'll die by natural causes, and somehow in some way you'll live out your life and you'll just you'll just die by just natural events of life. Or if I am supposed to be the leader, here's what'll happen. The earth will open, swallow you up, and you'll go to the realm of the dead alive. <laughs> That's an easy one, right? Crazy. And so what happens? That. The earth opens up, all of them, Korah and all of the band of individuals get sucked into the earth and go to the realm of the dead alive. Crazy story. Application, don't mess with leadership. No, that's not the application. <laughs> but, but there is this sense of, of this challenge and this desire to complain and things don't tend to work out well. And, and then you have generations later that write these words. That that in their history, they're marked by the failure of those who went before them. It will always be told when you hear of the sons of Korah, of Korah's defiance of Moses. It will always be a part of their journey. What I'd like to suggest to you before we jump into Psalm 44 is that the failures of those who have failed you are significant, but not defining. See, it's amazing to think that these words as they're penned in Psalm 44 and Psalm 42 and the other 11 that are written, that there is still this 
value and usefulness and identity that God gives the sons of Korah as they're identified by the primary person that failed to do what God had called them to do, to fail to serve the temple of God in a way that honored God in the most reasonable and passionate way. They desired to think that they were getting the short end of a long stick, and because of that, there was too much injustice, and they needed to take matters into their own hands. That name identifies them throughout their entire journey. And yet, they are used by God in the worship of uh, the temple under David's reign in incredible ways. God inspires them to pen words of joy and hope. See, the failure of those who have failed you are significant. But they're not defining. Because God is doing things in remarkable and innumerable ways. And so in Psalm 44, they begin to, to pen these words that communicate, and we don't know the circumstances behind it, but you can sense the feelings of frustration. I would suggest that it's the, it's the valleys of, God, you were good once, but you're not so good now. It's that silent blasphemy that takes place in our hearts, that we are so fearful about letting out and exposing to the world because we don't want to challenge God, but we've put God on trial in our hearts. That's Psalm 44. When you or I or someone that we love encounters injustice and they're dealing with things and events in life that just don't make sense. They can't draw a line between their sin and their suffering. They can't draw a line between the challenges that they're facing now and their desires and motives to serve God in a way that honors God, to do the right thing and get the wrong outcome. That's Psalm 44. And I think as God uses it to an, an inspired Paul to plant that as an application of God's inseparable love, if we find ourselves having God on trial in our heart, I think the answers that we get in Psalm 44 as Paul applies them are revolutionary and significant. Let's look at the first few verses together this morning. We're going to start with verses 1 through 8. And here is what the sons of Korah say. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. With you, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win their land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Though we put, through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever." So he begins, as these sons of Korah, with all of this history informing their desire to worship God, look back, which is what they're called to do frequently, remember the works of what God has done, and they're looking back in their lives and their worship of God and how God has provided, and they're saying to themselves, it's amazing how much God has worked. 
It's incredible. We're so grateful that I haven't trusted in my own abilities. I haven't saw myself as the one who has achieved these great things. I've given glory to God for his goodness and greatness. I'm innocent of the things that I'm being accused of. I find myself and my heart and my worship not perfect, but at this moment, pure. I long to serve God faithfully, and yet things aren't going well. What they're saying in these nine verses is that God's past faithfulness, faith, faithfulness can be both encouraging and difficult to process because we live in that moment of the past goodness of God, but the uncertainty of that goodness carrying us through in the future. We're, we're living in that moment of uncertainty where that valley, where we begin to put God on trial in our own hearts, that silent blasphemy that exists inside of us that, God, we know that you're good, but I'm not sure you're good now. It's that question of injustice and that silence that creates a significant challenge in our walk with the Lord. Here's what I want you to know in that moment. God's not afraid to hear from you and the lament and protest that you're offering. You notice that it finds its way in Psalm 44, that the sons of Korah are reflecting on the goodness of God in the past, and it's beginning to generate a level of frustration with God's inaction in the present. There are challenges that they're facing and uncertainty of what life looks like in the moment, and they don't know the outcome. They want to generate faith. They want to believe, and they want to want to believe, but it's just not happening. It's like the old 20th century amazing poets and theologians, Simon and Garfunkel said. Hear their words. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping, and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. And in the naked light, I saw 10,000 people, maybe more people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never shared, and no one dared to disturb the sound of silence. I think they get it, at least in part, that that's the space when you and I meet injustice that we live that it's though we are crying out for God's mercy, we're trying to be faithful, we're doing the right things, we're reading our Bibles, we're in community, we're praying, we're seeking God as best we can, and we know that we're fallible, we know we have sin in our life, we know that we're not perfect as we stand before God, but we have advocate Jesus Christ who is our perfection. We, we want to do the right thing, but God just remains silent. He's not showing up in our time of need. So what in God's name do we do? Here's their complaint in verses 9 through 22. Here's how they would describe their predicament. See if this sounds familiar to any one of us. But you have rejected us and disgraced us, and you have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. 
You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has happened to us that we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out the hands of a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of our heart. And here's the verse that Paul uses in Romans 8. Yet for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You hear the protest, don't you? You, you, you sense the whelming frustration as God is on trial in the hearts of the sons of Korah and God on trial in even our own hearts. God searches hearts and they're even willing to say, look, I'll stand before God and God knows my motives. He knows why I feel the way I feel and what I'm doing. He is well acquainted with the challenges that exist inside of my heart, but he is not mobilizing his resources like he did in the past. The world sees that God is not showing up. They're taunting us. I'm the laughing stock as I stand for God's truth. I pray the right prayers. I share the truth of Jesus Christ with the world around us, and it makes things worse. I try and love well and communicate about the goodness of God, and yet daily I'm feeling like I'm struggling to believe it. That's the space of Psalm 44. Think what the sons of Korah are suggesting here is that suffering is hard to understand when sin doesn't seem to be the reason. The question I think the sons of Korah are asking are, what happens when God's the reason for your suffering? Whether allowed or directed, there's something going on. We know his goodness. We know his sovereignty. We know he's working. He's omniscient, omnipotent. He knows everything and has all power. And yet, things could not be worse. All the things that I'm trying to do to live the life that honors him and wanting to make the decisions that I think God is calling me to and live out the mission that he's called for me. It is though I feel that it would have been better not to do it. That's a hard space in the valley of doubt, in the shadow of death that consumes our souls, in that darkness, that lament, that protest before God, the God of the universe. Let me just tell you, he's willing to hear. <laughs> they don't mince words at their struggles and their frustration, and they're looking for reasons. They're trying to figure out an understanding of what God does. Share with you a quick little story from Daniel um, McConaughey. In June 2007, he was walking along the road and hit by a driver. Not doing anything wrong, but it was a hit and run. So injustice clouded the entire experience, but after his incident, he was paralyzed from the waist down. Nothing he did wrong, not his fault. The driver got away with it, and he lives with this reminder. About a year later, he decided to write his own lament, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there are a few stanzas that I think capture exactly what the sons of Korah are getting at in Psalm 44. Here are Daniel's words. 
O Lord, my God, why do you wait to show up? I cried out to you when trouble struck. I ask you for restoration. I know that you heard me, and I know that you answered, yet nothing, nothing of meaning happens again today. Infinitesimal changes dog my days. I'm bounded by the prayers of the fickle, looking to me to prove their faith. Wearily I drag on, tiring of the waste, hating the horror, the pain, the suffering, the never-ending trial. The endless story drags on and on and on. When will the clouds break? When will the night cease? When will the tunnel end? When will you smile again? What a two-edged sword your voice is. You speak and then wait. You give hope and then vanish into the mist. You have forgotten me. Have you forgotten me? Have more important things arrested your attention? Hope turns back. This evil I see, I've seen. Nightly in my dreams, show me restored. And in the morning, I'm broken again. Cursed to relive the horror of suffering first day. Please slay me. Blot out my name from the ranks of the living. From the grave, I can finally rest. My wife can hear her dream, have her dreams again. My children, a father who can provide as I should. I wasted my youth. I dismissed the joys I should have embraced. Now I am a mere spectator pretending to be consequential while others take my place. A position I threw away one faithful day. How long? How long must I wait here in the middle between healing and hell, between heaven and horror? I'm unable to move, unable to see, lost in eternal confusion, Daniel says. My demons torment me, baiting me about like a toy, batting me about like a toy. I spin and crash in an endless cycle. I no longer know what way is up, which way is right, which way to go, which way is the path of life. He goes on to continue, and much like Psalm 44, begins to offer a plea. But it's that place of injustice, that very thing where inexplicable, inexplicable suffering is intruded into your life and it's nothing you have done to elicit it. You're not necessarily the one at fault. And certainly, we realize we live in a broken world and sin surrounds us and everything is groaning, as Paul had said in Romans 8. But it's unsatisfying, is it not? <laughs> it just doesn't really provide the relief that one would hope. So why? Why? Would Paul use Psalm 44 to describe God's inseparable love for his people? Doesn't measure up, does it? It seems a bit, if not very, confusing. Here's the plea of Psalm 44 in these last few verses. And the ask is for God to act. Verse 23. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Even their request is not just that their life would get better, 
but that God's reputation would withhold and withstand the challenges of all of the circumstances around them. That's their final request. God, show up and save us, rescue us, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love so that the world will know and we can remember that you love and care for your people in ways that are worth committing our lives to. So now's the question. What in God's name could have inspired Paul to apply this text to Romans chapter 8 in a discussion and probably one of the greatest treatises on God's inseparable love that has ever been written? And I would like to suggest to you this morning that as in these words written in Romans chapter 8, and let me just read them for you again. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So what can separate us from God's love? And Paul is communicating nothing. Tribulation? Nope. You're in. You're locked in. Famine? When you don't have enough food and are barely surviving? Is God's love separated from you? No. Nakedness? No. Sword? No. How about Are you separated from God's love when he's silent towards you? No. That's what Paul's getting at in this text. He's basically saying that even in the silence of God, we are guaranteed his inseparable love. Even when we don't feel like he speaks, even when he is not showing up, what consolation do we have? Yes, we live in a broken world, but in the midst of the silence where we feel like God has been distant and non-communicative, The one guarantee that you and I have is even the silence of God does not separate us from his love. Even when it's quiet and all you hear is the voice in your own head and the noise around you that is calling in to question the goodness and the passion of God. Paul would want you to know in Romans chapter 8 that the application of Psalms 44 is that you are never separated from the love of God, no matter what, even when it seems as though God is silent, the one thing that you can count your life on is that God is acting in love towards you, that God is caring about you in ways beyond what you can see, know, think, and believe. And yes, is there injustice in the world? Yes. Is there things that happen that are inexplicable? Yes. But is it separating us from the love of God, which is the most valuable thing that can hold us in the times of absolute confusion and chaos? Yes. The love of God is never in question, whether we feel it or not. That's what Paul wants you to know. That's why Psalm 44 is so pertinent, is that even when you feel like God has been utterly quiet. You've lived in the sound of silence. The one thing that you can be guaranteed is that God's love is not separate from your current suffering and injustice. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Let me pray. God, it is your goodness and your grace that we want to elevate here this morning. There are many of us that are walking through and have walked through inexplicable suffering. Nothing that we have brought on ourselves, a state of injustice where the words and the hope we have tried to manufacture, we've prayed, we've read the Bible, we've done the right things. 
And we feel like we stand before you and say, search our hearts. We are open to being changed, but it's, it's nothing that we've done. What is it? Will you awake and rise and take up our cause for your steadfast love? Will the world know and be able to declare that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, even the silence of God himself? We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.